Welcome to The Weekly Skeptic, episode 7. I'm Nick Dixon, and later we'll be hearing from Will Jones with the week's top stories, having our usual pop at Graham Norton, and giving you all the gossip from the Battle of Ideas. But first, I'm here with Toby, and of course we have to cover it. A new Chancellor, a Prime Minister hiding under a desk. Is it the collapse of the Tory party, Toby? Well, um, if the polls don't improve, then um, it looks like you know, if the if the polls don't improve and there was a general election tomorrow, um, then the Tory party would be completely decimated to such an extent that not only would Keir Starmer win a 360-odd seat majority, but the SNP would be the official opposition because the SNP would have more seats than the Conservatives. Um, but of course, um, I don't think things are going to remain quite where they are. And the government isn't uh, committed to having an election before. I think they can. I think they can stretch it out till January 2025. I thought it was until November because there's this five-year limit. But apparently, as long as you call it within five years, and if it doesn't take place for another six to eight weeks, that's fine. So it could be not until January 2025. And at the moment, I imagine they're going to try and string out that deadline for as long as they possibly can. Ah, oh, yeah, it's interesting. I haven't heard that take. Um, yes, I, although I have heard the massive majority. SNP opposition theory was in the Daily Mail and elsewhere saying that Labour could get a 364 majority, which would be mental. I mean, as I recall, Blair got a majority that was so big, he didn't even need Scotland. I mean, that's the key, isn't it? Do you need these other parties? Do you need some sort of coalition? And I find it's really interesting, this whole thing about PR and will proportional representation happen? So Farage, at a Bitcoin event, said this thing that well, we could end up with proportional representation. And that's when I kind of swoop back in the last thing they want, you know, and, and use it to create my new party. And then people, you know, vaguely on our side, like Calvin Robinson was saying, we need proportional representation, other people at GB News. But then Peter Hitchens slapped Calvin down and said, no, no, we don't want that. We want the destruction of the Tory party. because We need a new party, basically. And Calvin was saying, well, what about all these parties like Reclaim, they're not doing anything. And Hitchens says, no, no, you have to destroy the Tory party first, which he's been saying for 20 years. And now Farage seems to be finally saying as well, actually, in another video. So what is the answer, Toby? And, and, the, and the question there, of course, just sorry, is what would replace it as well? Because, of course, we might want a Conservative party. You know, Hitchens might want a Conservative Conservative party. Imagine that. But would that actually win enough votes? Is it, does it have to be the, the Dominic Cummings kind of vote leave coalition thing of sort of a mixture of pro NHS, but tough on immigration, you know, pro science and technology. So broadly, three questions. Will the Tory party be destroyed? Should it be destroyed? Should we have PR? Four questions. And what would we replace it with? Yeah, well, yeah, the, 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 the theory that the Tories are doing so badly that whatever happens at the next general election, PR is inevitable, and that creates a window of opportunity for people like Nigel to um, re-enter British politics, because had he won the percentage of the vote, um, uh, he did as leader of the Brexit party, and before that, the UKIP, um, then he would obviously, if we had PR, be entitled to a large number of seats. Um, I think the one difficulty with that theory is that Labour are doing so well at the moment that it doesn't look like they'll need to um, can you know uh, uh, make a concession to either the SNP or the Lib Dems and say yeah we'll introduce PR um, and it's not in Labour's interest if Labour can actually win overall majorities now under our present electoral system to change it because PR makes that less likely. I think the risk of PR. I mean, assuming that the polls shift slightly in the Conservatives' favour and 
Labour under Keir Starmer don't win an overall majority and he does have to bring in some form of PR. The risk is that that could entrench a permanent centre-left majority government in this country. Um, and uh, it might also mean, you know, uh, re-entering the EU or um, getting back into the single market on very unfavourable terms. Um, so, you know, it, it feels quite, it feels like quite a grim prospect to me, PR. And I'm just generally not in favour of PR. I mean, we can see how it works in places like, you know, Sweden, the election was several weeks ago now there's still no government um in italy sometimes you go for months without a government because after the election result because there is no overall winner with an absolute majority there's a lot of horse trading manifestos get ditched it all gets sorted out behind closed doors in smoke-filled corridors not very democratic um and i quite like you know um firm decisive outcomes the possibility of governments who can actually do something so for a variety of reasons i'm not particularly keen on pr um even if it did mean that um, Nigel could re-enter politics. I wouldn't, that's not a bad thing, but um, I'm not sure that's a good enough reason to support PR. Um, could, could, I mean, the Hitchens idea, yeah, as you say, which he's been touting for some time, um, I, I, I mean, I, the Conservative Party is the, um, it has, you know, is the most successful election winning political party, I think, in the world. It's won more political victories than any other political party. Um, it's done much, much better than Labour um, since the Labour Party was formed in what, 1906? I think Labour have only won three, only three Labour leaders have won overall majorities since 1906 when the Labour Party was formed, whereas numerous leaders of the Conservative Party have won overall majorities, um, including, you know, Boris, David Cameron, Margaret Thatcher, to name just three. Um, so um, uh, I think it might be a bit premature to write off the Conservative Party. I would have thought a better bet would be to try and ensure that if they do lose the next general election and whoever the leader is, whether it's Liz or Rishi Sunak, is then deposed, uh, that we back the leader we want who, you know, can can take the party in the direction we'd like it to be taken. So my 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 um my preference would be, you know, if 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 the worst happens and the Conservatives are out of power after the next general election, we back Kemi Badenoch to become the next leader. She's then the leader of the opposition. I think she'd be an effective leader of the opposition, um, assuming <laughs> The Tories don't get less seats than the SNP, which I think is unlikely. Um, and and then she has, you know, a five-year period to hone her ideas and prepare for government. And there's an opportunity then to work out exactly what the kind of le legislative agenda, uh, the programme of the next Conservative government should be, just like Margaret Thatcher had five years as Leader of the Opposition to work that out and prove, as a consequence, to be a very effective Prime Minister. What we need is a kind of, just as the CPS played this kind of policy uh, role um, in the Thatcher revolution by working with her for that kind of five-year period when she was leader of the opposition. So one would hope that some think tanks could work with Kemi and her team to come up with a similarly revolutionary, transformative legislative program for when she wins in what? When will it be? 2030. Um, so um, that would be my that would be my preferred strategy rather than you know. PR or um, a, a kind of destroy the Conservatives Party or a vote leave party. I'm not sure that um, I'm not sure I trust Dominic Cummings anymore um, after he disgraced himself as a kind of lockdown zealot. Um, I used to think he was, you know, God's gift and fantastic and walked on water, but then he bitterly disappointed me and I think some others by 
becoming such an enthusiast, such a tub thumper for kind of severe COVID restrictions. Um, so I'm not sure I'd trust Dominic to um, set up a new party that can then lead us to the promised land. Well, I have so many things to say to that. I'm thinking which ones will get me kicked out of your members club because because I'm sort of leaning towards the uh, destroying the Tory side, but I, you know, I don't want to alienate myself with all your Tory mates, and you know, I'm, I'm trying to network. So, but I am sort of, I am sort of, I do sort of lean towards the destroy the party side because it doesn't really represent anyone. I mean, this is the big problem, is it? The, things have realigned. The parties, Labour now represent a few people in London, Keir Starmer's mates, and then who did the Conservatives represent? It's sort of like in America, you've got the coastal elite, and then you've got most of the country, which gets sort of a pejoratively called flyover country and 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 they didn't have anyone either because they only had the republican party who were a bit establishment but then they did get trump now we never got that we got brexit brexit was our trump but the parties don't represent that i mean a more accurate representation of the country might be a brexit party not the brexit party that nigel farage had but a kind of perhaps the vote leave party that cummings is talking about versus another party that's a remainer blob party but then again is that coalition impossible because leave the leave people incorporate anyone from jeremy corbyn to nigel farish so maybe that's not possible but it, when you talk about kemi you know a lot a lot of the country think people like the blob people i've spoken to the deep state people see her as like a right-wing maniac which i always find sort of amusing so i don't see her like that at all but w- you know would someone like that unite the country because there's what i want which i would want kemi but then there's what could actually win elections and that's my question i mean I totally agree with you about PR and, and, and Italy. Italy have 19 parliamentary parties. Maloney was the first properly elected leader in 14 years. So that's the obvious flaw of PR. So I'm against that as well. But I wonder what the alternative is. I'll just give you this Dominic Cummings tweet. And I totally agree with you as well that he, he became a lockdown maniac. He is a sort of technocrat. He just he just wants things done more efficiently. He's got no problem with technocracy other than that it's not working very well. So he just that's, that's how he seems to me. But he did put out this interesting tweet today I think it was actually from, yes, from today as, as we're recording. 2019 voters did not vote for two remain campaigners to slash the NHS, raise taxes on average families, vandalize science funding, slash police, repeat Osborne's capex vandalism. If Tory MPs want the opposite of 2019 manifesto, they need to have an election. And there is something in that, but the Tories went against the, they've gone against Boris and the, and the Boris, man, you know, the Boris uh, mandate in a sense, even if Boris himself abandoned that mandate. Yes. I mean, I I think I agree with him up to a point. I think it would be difficult if the Conservatives were to replace Liz Truss with somebody else and um, that candidate was unopposed or there was a very short leadership contest in which the members weren't consulted. Um, uh, I think it would be very difficult then for the Conservative Party not to hold a general election. I mean, that new leader would have no kind of mandate and very little democratic authority. And that would make it difficult for them to, you know, face down a general strike by militant trade unions, for instance. And and I think there would be a huge clamour in the media and on the opposition benches and even internationally for their for there to be an election. And and that would put the Conservatives in a very difficult spot. You know, they'd look for it. Um, they could, I suppose, you know, hold out. I don't think they can be forced to hold a general election. Um, uh, so, you know, I think it's, at the, it's, at the, it's now at the Prime Minister's discretion as to when to hold a general election since they've repealed the Fixed-Term Parliament Act. But nonetheless, it would be politically difficult not to. And if they did not do it, nonetheless, I think that would be politically 
damaging and they would almost certainly lose the next general election. So I think the only circumstances in which they could um, appoint a new leader, um, not have a vote of the membership, not have a three month long contest, is if they reinstalled Boris as leader, um, because he, after all, did win the 2019 general election. So I think they could resist calls to hold a general election if they replaced Liz with Boris, although it would make it would it would still be politically embarrassing. And, um, you know, um, who knows if the public would ever warm up to Boris again. But uh, I think if, if the choice at the next general election is between a Conservative Party led by Liz or a Conservative Party led by Boris again, um, the latter might do better than the former. Yeah, and that's the question. Could Boris come back? I mean, why did they ever get rid of him? It, yes, there was some, obviously there was some moral dodgy stuff and there was Partygate and so on, but I'm never quite convinced it was it was sufficient. And, and at the end, no one really knew exactly what it was. Was it Chris Pincher? I mean, that's ludicrous. And as Nadim Doris points out, they were only five points behind then, and now they're in danger of being completely obliterated. So it's obviously a disaster. And this thing about the members. So these are this is a question. Let's move on to the coup and the members. I mean... You've got this thing, you've got William Hague saying that they shouldn't go to the members. You've got Tobias Elwood agreeing with him. There was an anonymous Tory MP that said, we should only go to the members when we're in opposition and it doesn't really matter. I mean, talk about saying the quiet part out loud. You know, that reminds me of that famous quote, if voting made any difference, they wouldn't let you do it. It's like, you're not supposed to say that bit, mate. Um, <laughs> so I thought it just shows complete contempt for the members, as does the idea of bringing back Rishi. So Taya have a good piece out today, Rishi lost, get over it. And um, Christopher Hope was sent this message at the Telegraph, a WhatsApp message, where a prominent member of the 2019 intake of Tory MPs said, Rishi PM, Hunt Chancellor, Penny Foreign Secretary, and it's a done deal. So apparently they're just making this deal. Behind it. And isn't this the problem? I don't want to get all conspiracy on you, Toby, but there has been a coup. Mordant says there's not a coup. When, when, you, when you're having to say there's not a coup, my ears prick up and I go, it sounds like a bit like a coup. And it is kind of a coup, but wasn't it a coup on Boris? And now it's definitely a coup, not necessarily from Klaus Schwab, but from just the Remainer blob, the people that tried to stop Brexit, the same old blob. Yeah, I mean, I think the yeah the installation of Jeremy Hunt as Chancellor of the Exchequer and de facto Prime Minister, you know, the CEO to Liz's chairman. Um, yeah, that, that does certainly have the whiff of a coup about it. And the fact that um, he had to come back, race back from Brussels um, to take up his new role. And then almost the first thing he did was reverse um, every, you know, reform in the mini budget. Um, and I'm nervous that um, that uh, he'll scupper Liz's plans to um, scrap the Northern Irish Protocol, um, because he's a Remainer, as we know. Um, and uh, I'm also worried about, you know, I, I, as you know, I'm a great opponent of the online safety bill. And I was hoping that, you know, with Liz's support, it would be turned into a children's online safety bill and all the stuff in it designed to protect adults would be stripped out. But I now, I'm now nervous that with him, if he really is, you know, effectively in charge, that won't happen. We'll actually just see the online safety bill being brought back in its original form. I'm worried now about the fate of the higher education bill too, another bill I've been um, lobbying for. Um, uh, it's a freedom of speech bill. So um, yeah, I'm really nervous about about um, Hunt taking the reins. Um, and, you know, it does feel quite undemocratic. I mean, not only did he not, you know, win an election, he didn't even 
compete in the you know leadership contest or barely competed he was eliminated i think in the first round because he couldn't get enough votes to get to the second round um and uh, so he does feel like he's certainly being foisted on on the members and to a great extent on the parliamentary party too um and i heard today that um, he might be the kind of unity candidate if they want to avoid um uh, uh, another membership vote and a protracted contest um and they're looking for a unity candidate he could be the kind of caretaker candidate we'll have a you know we'll have a contest in due course but not now because everything's too precarious we need to calm the markets we need a period of calm and stability and you know there could be an argument and some mps are making this argument that he should be liz should resign and he should be installed as caretaker pm i mean it really that really does feel like a coup that's the kind of thing you expect to happen in italy you know uh, not here um so that is alarming um but um i don't think um you know klaus schwab is behind it um i think uh it, it could well be that um you know the the remainers within the parliamentary party who hate liz and um uh hate brexit and um have always liked him because you know he's a, he's a remainer um uh, uh have have foisted him upon her um uh, apparently her first I mean I think part of the difficulty was her first choice was supposedly Sajid Javid um, uh, but he didn't want to do it um, presumably because he doesn't think her government's going to last very long and he doesn't want to serve as her chancellor for a couple of weeks um, but uh, presumably he wants to throw his hat into the ring next time there's a leadership election and doesn't think this would do him any credit um, so perhaps he was you know maybe she, her, her hands were tied and there weren't that many other candidates she could have asked or maybe she did ask others and they also said no uh, but anyway it's, it, it's certainly a very depressing development well, it, it puts her in an impossible position, in my opinion. You, you can't have a chancellor who goes against everything your previous chancellor wanted, and then you just sit there, you know, as you, with no power. It, it's absurd for her. And as you say, he's called the de facto prime minister. Someone went on Wikipedia immediately and it put Jeremy Hunt as the chancellor and de facto prime minister. So it already became fact, someone having a bit of a jape there, probably. I call him the right honourable member for Beijing, which is caught on on Twitter. That's got hundreds of likes because he loves China so much. He he said we you know they they had the best lockdowns. We should have locked up my sister forever or whatever he said. He wanted zero COVID. He said what my sister-in-law, he described the kind of hell she was put through when she arrived back in China. She was immediately kind of carted off to a quarantine facility and, you know, given astronaut food for months and he sort of praised this as kind of a great a model response which we should be emulating anyway we're falling very short of the good best practice which is being exemplified by this appalling dictatorship yeah and uh, and of course people 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 speculate that um uh his wife um, may have quite close links to the uh, communist regime apparently she appears on um uh, chinese state television she was a friend of the um, uh, I think former Chinese ambassador to London's wife. Um, so, uh, but I, you know, let, let, let's not go there. Um, but uh, yeah, he, he's certainly no China hawk. Yeah, that that was that incredible video, which he can never live down. As you say, it seemed to be uh, outlining a dystopia. It turns out it was a manifesto. It was like people welded into their homes. My sister-in-law stuck at home for months. Drones circling saying, give up your thirst for freedom. That's what we need to bring to the UK. <laughs> You're like, I didn't know you were going that way, Jeremy. So yeah, absolute nutcase. Um, his mad staring eyes don't help. And um, he reversed almost all of the budget. And it's funny that the, the media are trying to portray it, of course, as Truss had this crazy Thatcherite budget, which actually wasn't that crazy. It was badly explained, but it actually wasn't that crazy. And then, you know, now it's all being reversed and that's all great. But actually, 
Truss did a quite big state policy on the energy price cap. She said, we're going to give you money for two years so you can pay your energy bills. And that was quite big state, quite a lefty policy. And Hunt's reversed that. He said, in April, we'll look at it again and we'll review it. And instead of going on for two years, it's only going to go on until April. And then we'll maybe do some sort of means-tested thing. Now, I'm not necessarily saying which will be the better policy, but it's not quite the case, is it, that it was this evil Thatcherite thing versus you – know, it's, no. it's more about assuring the markets than anything else. Yes. And uh, yeah, I, I, I mean, in some ways, um, the revised budget um, uh, is is more Thatcherite than her mini budget, because as you said, her mini budget included, you know, up to 200 billion pounds of support so people could pay their energy bills. And in addition, um, she wasn't proposing to cut public services, cut expenditure on public services, whereas he's come back and said, we're going to limit that energy cap until April, and then it's going to be targeted. So reducing that bill. Um, and in addition, um, we're going to have to make some, I think he called them eye-wateringly difficult decisions, by which he meant we're going to have to cut public expenditure on public services. Um, uh, so in a way, it's a more Thatcherite budget than than the original mini-budget, even though it's her and Quasi that are supposed to be the kind of libertarian jihadists, and he is the kind of pacifying centrist. Do you think there's anything in the in the theory that it's uh, Rishi's mates in the city rigged the guilt yields and all? I've heard all these kind of things that basically the the markets are have sort of got rid of trust. But I hear some people saying even that is a conspiracy. Well, um, one one conspiracy theory I heard, which I thought was worth examining in more detail, is that the pensions of the Bank of England employees are linked to the performance of the gilt markets in some way. Um, so um, when um, uh, the yields on 10-year bonds started, or the interest on 10-year bonds started to increase because they became less popular, suddenly, you know, it was in particular the pension fund that all the employees of the Bank of England are relying on, which began to crater. So their intervention, which arguably didn't help, um, uh, uh, certainly didn't help Liz Truss, um, uh, may have been designed not just to calm the bond market, but also to shore up their own pensions. Well, I'll have to ask my source about that because that's a heck of an accusation. <laughs> I have sources uh, in, in places. I'll ask about that in the deep state. But yeah, that would be shocking. I can't comment on that. Um, what about the but, fact I mean, that... J- j- so I, just, I mean, it, when you think about it, um, it, Jeremy Hunt's you know, sudden rise is one of the most remarkable political comebacks in British history, certainly in recent British political history. I mean, you know, he... He served as health secretary, didn't do a particularly great job, I don't think, um, was out of power when he, he ran again. He ran in the 2019 Conservative leadership election, came a distant second to Boris. And the rumour at the time was that um, Boris's people gerrymandered the final vote in the parliamentary leadership contest because they, they wanted Boris to be up against Jeremy um, when it went out to the members and not Michael Gove, who ended up coming third because they thought Gove would do better and give Boris a run for his money in the kind of membership husting. So he only became second, according to that theory, because you know he was thought to be the weaker of the of, 
of the two candidates in him and Gove. He, he got absolutely nowhere in the um, most recent leadership contest, looked like a completely busted flush. Um, and now suddenly he's back as the de facto prime minister without having won anything. It is pretty extraordinary. Yeah, it's mad. His campaign lasted five days. Yeah, as you say, roundly rejected by the members and the party. Now he's back. If he can come back, then surely Boris can come back. I mean, I'm, the thing I remember about Hunt was when he was culture secretary on Question Time saying that he didn't know who Roman Polanski was. And I always thought that was a bit pathetic. And um, and then he tried to get out of it by saying, before my time. Well, it's not really before your time. And even if it is, why do I know who he is there? I'm younger <laughs> than you. So I always thought, yeah. And, and then he was sort of not liked by the, the by the nurses and things in the NHS. And I thought, what has he done well? Great question. But trust now is in such trouble. And, and the danger is we're recording this and things move so fast. I mean, the, the last time we recorded, Quasi Quartem was still Chancellor. And that already seems old news, not even worth covering on this show. So this show <laughs> might look ridiculous in... A few days, Boris might be back. <laughs> Anything could have happened. Hunt might be gone. But Truss is in danger of being the shortest-lived prime minister ever. Canning has the record, 119 days. Some things say 118 days. Truss, as we record, is on 39 days. And some say she's clinging on purely to not beat that record and not be the shortest ever PM. And Canning died, of course, so that was, <laughs> that was the reason he didn't make it. And, you know, she's in this absurd position. She was there in Parliament. And I understand it was a protocol. There was the urgent question. And the, because it was an urgent question, she, she nominated Penny Morden. And once you've nominated someone, and the question is, did she have to nominate Morden? Apparently, Truss had urgent business. But once you've nominated Morden as leader of the House, you're then not allowed to come in and answer questions. And you just have to sit there like a dweeb. Whatever the protocol, it didn't look very good. And then, and I felt sorry for her. And then Morden didn't even help her because there was that moment, I think it was Stella Creasy said, is the Prime Minister hiding under a desk? And Morden, instead of like moving on to something else or, or coming up with a robust reply, said, the PM is not under a desk. It's like, don't repeat the phrase under a desk. Then everyone <laughs> laughed for about two minutes. And it just seemed like she was maybe sticking the knife in a little bit. What do you think? I don't know. Yeah, maybe. Um, and incidentally, you know, you referenced the text that Christopher Choke referred to in which he said what was it rishi for pm yeah christopher Jeremy hope Hunt there's for, a chope and a hope that's christopher sorry, hope sorry it's christopher hope yeah not chope um and and penny for foreign secretary i'm not sure penny would be happy with foreign secretary i think penny thinks penny for pm and um, anything less than that and she's not going to support the triumvirate so um i thought that was wishful thinking actually on the part of the backbencher whom he was quoting yeah i think she's very ambitious and sees an opportunity in this crisis to um revive her own leadership ambitions, which I think is another worrying, <laughs> worrying development. It's very worrying. I've been amazed at some of the people that have fallen for it. Patrick Christie's usually a sort of top lad at, at GB News said, Penny for PM. Rachel uh, Cunliffe from the New Statesman said, seriously, though, Penny Morden is very good at this, isn't she? That's more obvious because that's like a, I've called it like a, a Chinese psyop with like, with like the way they introduced TikTok to demoralize it. The new statesmen say, Penny's really good. And then we get Penny because they want Penny, but that's not what we want. You know, they, they, of course they want Penny. She's ultra woke. Mm. I mean, the, the best thing about Penny is that she's quite hot, isn't she? I mean, is that, is that too misogynist? <laughs> I'd, um, she's certainly very woke. Um, I looked through her um, political book, which was published a few years ago, and it's full of woke gibberish um of the worst kind um i think she even said that she even said that um she thought it ain't our fault mum was kind of had traded oh, on yeah. racist stereotypes or something. and dad's like, army yeah yeah, yeah. dad's anti dad's army anti dad's army it was like it yeah. was imperialism or something. yeah it was awful <laughs> 
And that, that's why she fell behind and end up, ended up losing. But now she's back. They all seem to be able to come back. That's why she fell behind. Everyone figured out how woke she is. She had that woke activist twin brother. And yes, all, yes. all that seems to have been forgotten. Yep. All right. Well, I think we've probably done enough on the toys. I mean, that, that's a good chunk on the toys. We normally do our pros and cons section. I mean, what would your pros be for that? I mean, to me, the cons is probably everything. And the only pro is that either the Tories have to are forced to sort themselves out or that we get a new party. What do you think? Yeah, it's hard to find um, much to be enthusiastic about um, about this government at the moment. Um, uh, but Suella Braverman did speak out um, quite robustly. Um, one of the things I was going to include um, as as uh, in, in the peak woke section um, was a tweet by Leicestershire Police, um, which uh, which said that uh, it said we all had to do our bit to tackle hate crime, and then as an example of hate crime, um, it 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 had this um, apparently invented trans woman invented by Leicestershire police and they wrote the script too and but it was purported to be a quote from this trans woman saying how upset she was when someone had misgendered her on social media and that was being given as Leicestershire police as an example of a hate crime as though it is actually now a crime to misgender a trans person uh, when of course it it isn't um, and um, Suella Braverman pointed that out and said you know the police need to stop trying to police what are legitimate public debates and focus on solving actual crimes, which I thought was a good intervention. So Suella, I think that's a pro. Okay. Where that's that's a pro. Pros? We're struggling a bit, but that, that is one. I mean, and they did a good piece on that on the Lotus Eaters with my friend Connor and Harry Miller, who pointed out, yeah, most things are not crimes. There's hate crimes, but most things fall short of that. There's no hate incidents aren't really a thing. You know, he broke it all down. It's like, you have to, it has to be pretty bad for an actual hate crime. Everything else is just the police messing around. Yeah, I think, I think my only pro is that we might have a, a new party out of this. But yeah, I think I think that's all I've got. Really. I think I think on on the new party idea. I mean, let, let me make an analogy. Um, okay, it's as though let, let's see, let's say the 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 Tories are Man United. Mm. They're not doing very well at the moment. Not doing terribly well. Hey, um, ten hearts, and, all right. Steady on. They okay, certainly well, weren't well, for well, the last ten years. I'll give you that. <laughs> okay, um, uh, and uh, so so uh, let's say you're a Man United supporter, which I am. and the solution being proposed by you know. Uh, Christopher Hitchens is um, it's time to um, abandon Man United. It's time to destroy them and set up a new football team um, uh, that, 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 that isn't, if it isn't even in the EFL um, uh, it's a basically a Sunday league pub team, which we hope can go on and top the premier league in due course and beat Manchester city. Um, it's kind of a whereas, you know, the, uh, my argument is, look, if you don't like the current direction in which Man United is being taken, you have reservations about the current manager, just replace the manager and bring in some new players. Don't abandon the club. Interesting analogy. I mean, you did say Christopher Hitchens instead of Peter. If Christopher Hitchens was promoting it, I think we should sorry. probably listen because yes, that would be very impressive. Peter, yeah. But but um, <laughs> I don't even have to. I don't even have to put myself in thought experiment mode because I am a Man United fan, lifelong. And um, it's it, what you're saying is quite interesting. You're sort of saying uh, that it's like Salford City, which is the team Gary Neville owns. If if Salford, yeah. we're saying let's <laughs> get rid of Man United and try out Salford. They've got a lot of pluck. Yeah, I see what you're saying. Hmm, it is definitely rolling the dice, isn't it? I get your point. It, yeah, and, and who, how would it even work? Who would have to come together? I mean, Farage and Cummings, that's not going to happen. I mean, yes, 
So I definitely get your point. Yeah, one tip. I mean, one tricky thing about um, uh, it's a bit like the reason Liz Truss may survive for a few weeks, maybe even a few months, possibly even a year, is because you know the various warring factions within the party can't actually agree on who should be leader. Um, there is no obvious unity candidate. The others aren't going to stand down in favour of that candidate when they think there's a chance they could be the next leader. Um, so for that reason, Liz may survive. But for the same reason, okay, it's all very well for Peter Hitchens to talk about a new party to replace the Conservative Party. And then we have Nigel Farage talking about another new party. I mean, there'll, there'll be at least a dozen. And there are some new parties out there already. There's the Reclaim Party, the Reform Party. There's the kind of SDP. You know, we've got no shortage of challenger parties. But, uh, you know, it's not like we can all agree on an alternative to the Conservative Party. It'll just be chaos. Maybe, you're right. I've thought about joining the Tory party now in a kind of, in a kind of buy low theory. You know what I mean? Like at this, at this worst time, get in there now. I could probably be a candidate. Yeah, yeah. You could even be leader. Uh, <laughs> Maybe we should not? both go for it, Toby. We'll, we'll divide it up between us. Who can be a cha- you can be chancellor because I don't really understand the economy. Um, I, I tell right, you, one person Tom- I feel a bit sorry for in all of this just is Tom Tugendhat. You know, because really? he got a lot further than Jeremy, and um, you know he came. Well, he came sixth. Um, I think it was. Um, but no one's talking about him as a potential unity candidate or caretaker PM. Like, where's he in this conversation? Poor old Tom. Well, I hate to be a stickler, Toby, but I'll never feel too sorry for Tom Tukenat because he <laughs> threw Sir Roger Scruton under the bus and I never really That's forget right, that. He did, he did yeah. send an apology letter later, but still. I mean, the fact that you side with the new statesman over one of our foremost conservative thinkers, I mean, no. I agree. All right. Do you want to do the advert quickly? Our, our wonderful sponsor. Yeah, let's do that. Let's do our ad. Uh, I just need to find it here. Well, I should know it by heart by now. It's if you've found the world a depressing and dystopian place in recent years, perhaps now's the time for a therapeutic laugh. The new COVID spoof, busting anti-vax myths, seriously expert arguments for the COVID deniers in your life is now available on Amazon. Its supposed author is a fictitious professor, Oshin McCamadon, which means Oshin, son of stupid in the Irish language. A man who's a mix of all the worst COVID experts we've had to suffer in recent times. People like Jeremy Hunt, maybe. For him, the vaccine is definitely a vaccine because it self-identifies as one and it's vaccine-phobic to suggest otherwise. Sweden's no-lockdown approach was nothing other than the sad descent of a former liberal utopia into a far-right nightmare. And the Great Reset will leave us all utterly delirious with joy by 2030. Laughter is an excellent antidote to tyranny, and this satire will put a smile back on even the most jaded face. To get your copy, head over to Amazon now. Links will be in the show notes. Okay, let's now go to Will Jones for a roundup of the week's news. All right, so I'm here with Will Jones, Dr. Will Jones, Daily Skeptic editor, to go through all the week's stories. And first, Will, I believe Boston University have created a mutant virus in an attempt to give us this new pandemic that Bill Gates promised us. Right, Nick. Researchers at Boston University have been up to some more gain-of-function research. They've uh, been splicing together different bits of COVID from different strains, and they've put together some Omicron, and they've mixed it with the original strain to create a new super virus that is more infectious, more immunovasive, and they found that it killed 80% of the subjects that they infected with it, which sounds frankly terrifying. And as you say, could be a really devastating new pandemic if it leaks, which obviously no virus would ever do. But just on the off chance that it would, that sounds devastating. I should clarify that the subjects they infected, the 80% who died, they were all mice. They've only tried it on mice. <laughs> 
and that doesn't necessarily mean it will kill 80% of humans. The original strain killed 100% of mice that are infected, I read this week. So it may not be quite as terrifying as it sounds, but still doesn't sound like a very good idea, does it? Yeah, it's one of those where you go, why are you doing this? Like you can do it, but it doesn't necessarily mean you should. Exactly. They've created a monster, as Mary Shelley said. And we have another story that's almost the opposite of that, which is COVID less deadly than we thought. Yeah, so this is new research out from uh, Professor John Ioannidis. Uh, He's been doing amazing work since the very beginning of the pandemic on looking at antibody surveys to see uh, how deadly COVID really is uh, when you look at how many have died uh, with the virus. Well, he does say, obviously, there is a controversy over, over what you count as a COVID death. But even so, he looks at that and, and the number of people who have antibodies and you divide one by the other to get the infection fatality rate. That's the number of uh, people who die for every infection. And he's found from his research looking at antibody studies from over 30 countries, he's found uh, that the infection fatality rate in the non-elderly is even more minuscule than we already thought, at uh, basically 0% for anyone under 30 and even getting up to 50 or 60 we're talking 0.1% or less that's excellent news and that's all from uh, before vaccination and before Omicron so that's all from surveys from the first year of the pandemic so he says it's a it's a new baseline for uh, for looking at how deadly this uh, this virus that we've closed down the world and now created massive economic crises for ourselves um, over how deadly it really is all right so some rare good news kind of although we like you say we've already done all that stuff Um, And we have another one about the vaccine, the fact that it was not tested on stopping transmission. And this is a video I saw going around Twitter from Pfizer's Janine Small admitting that they they never tested it for transmission. And then um, this uh, Rob Ruse, is it? The MEP from the Netherlands, he did a, a really good video pointing this out and saying everyone needs to share this and this needs to be exposed. Yeah, that's right. That video has now been uh, viewed over 4 million times, um, I saw today, and uh, which is amazing. And uh, so this is the story that a Pfizer executive has admitted that uh, the company in their trials never actually tested uh, the Pfizer vaccine for whether it stopped transmission of COVID. You, know, you would have thought that would be pretty essential when you're claiming that these vaccines are going to end the pandemic and give herd immunity and you're going to force people to take it in order to stop the spread and stop, not kill granny, you'd have thought that testing this uh, might have been kind of essential, but, but clearly not. Uh, the odd thing about this story, Nick, is that, um, is that this isn't actually news. It's been clear since the beginning that they didn't test the vaccines for transmission. And we've been writing about it, as have others at The Daily Skeptic, uh, since the trials um, and the protocol were announced. So so in a, in a strange way, this isn't actually news. But I think a lot of people are just catching up with this because a lot of people, there's a lot more people who are sceptical about all things COVID and vaccines and the official narrative now. So some of the stories that we were covering two years ago, like this one, are now uh, breaking into the mainstream and people are being shocked uh, by what they're hearing. So it's good to see that that's, um, that's making an impact. Yes, we'll be less shocked than some others. But yeah, you're right. I mean, this means that Fauci and Biden were wrong. Let's not say lied, let's say wrong. Uh, plus COVID passports would have been redundant. And all those people who said, oh, you don't deserve treatment on the NHS and so on, which was always nonsense, unless you go with the argument that, okay, if you don't have the vaccine, you, you can make your symptoms worse. But then you're into the realm of, well, then, what about smokers? What about obese people and all that? So this is one of those, this huge if true, I would say, Will. 
Yeah, I think we should clarify that they're specifically saying they didn't test it for transmission. That means they didn't test it for whether someone who's infected is who's unvaccinated is less likely to give it to other people, but they're less infectious if they're vaccinated, which we now know is not true. So that was unknown at the time, and it's now known that it's not true. Vaccinated people who catch it, um, so-called breakthrough infections, um, are just as infectious as, as anyone else. What it's not saying is they didn't test the vaccine to reduce the, the likelihood someone will get infected and therefore the number of infections. They claim that they did, and people um, who want to defend the vaccines would come back and say that. Now, as it ha- now of course, we already know, we know um, since then that the vaccines are pretty useless at stopping infections as well. And in fact, there's a lot of evidence that the vaccinated have a higher infection rate, so-called uh, negative vaccine efficacy. Uh, so that's a, a, a wrong claim as well. But there is a nuance there that's uh, just worth bearing in mind, and the fact checkers will inevitably pounce on, as I'm sure they already have. Okay, good. Well, let's be very fair. Um, so here's, here's, here's a case of climate wrong think, I believe. State-owned media agency leads campaign to cancel science paper. Yeah, so the state-owned French media agency, AFP, or Agence France Presse, um, or how you say it, has decided that um, it's not content with just fact-checking social media and plebs um, who post things they disagree with on Twitter, uh, but is, in, is now going after peer-reviewed climate science papers in peer-reviewed journals. Some Italian scientists uh, wrote a climate paper in a journal which went against the idea of a climate emergency and showed that from the data and the evidence, extreme weather is not trending upwards. A lot of in, a lot of forms of extreme weather are not trending upwards. There's no obvious trend. So, that, so, so in other words, there's no real evidence there, as is commonly claimed, for climate emergency. So they published a paper on that. It was peer-reviewed. It's out in the journal. And now AFP um, have fact-checked it. They have found it wanting because it disagrees with uh, the IPCCC and therefore is you know, not, 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 not acceptable. And so they're, they're calling for it to be retracted. Um, and of course, this is just a new level of, of fact-checking and censorship. The idea that some trumped-up fact-checkers on a media agency uh, can start going telling uh, peer-reviewed journals uh, which science papers they should uh, they should and shouldn't publish or attract uh, just because it doesn't agree uh, with Greta Thunberg. Ridiculous. <laughs> yeah. All right. I believe we have time for just one more. And I like this one. It's from The Guardian, and The Guardian have finally become lockdown sceptics. No one thought it could happen. This is a piece from Adam Wagner, and it's, it actually makes some perfectly good points, although arguably a few years too late, Will. Yeah, so I don't. I think it's a, a bit of a stretch to say The Guardian have become lockdown sceptics, but they have finally published <laughs> uh, one opinion article, one op-ed from a lockdown sceptic point of view, a barrister, um, Adam Wagner, who's argued uh, that uh, lockdowns were a terrible idea, uh, that they were wrong on principle, they were anti-democratic, that it's creating all kinds of problems in the way that we govern, too much emergency procedures, you know, all the stuff that we've been arguing for for the last two and a half years. Um, And so The Guardian, two and a half years after Boris Johnson announced the lockdowns, has finally decided that it's got uh, it's time to get round to publishing something criticising that from a principal point of view. It being the Guardian, it didn't quite go as far as as really criticising, saying that they shouldn't have locked down. You know, they, they, there's obviously some editorial guidance going on there, and um, all the commenters underneath, if you look at them, you know, while they're kind of agreeing on principle that you know this Tory lockdown shouldn't have been done in this way um, because you know it's a bit anti-democratic and aren't these people authoritarian? But they don't go as far as saying. But not that we should have locked down, you know, as far as they're concerned, that we should um, we should still have locked down harder, sooner, faster, and 
kill thousands, you know, millions of people that would then do that because the Tory lockdown was too late. So, uh, you know, baby steps, Nick, baby steps. But it's, it's a step in the right direction. Yeah, some Guardian readers weren't quite ready for it. But the bizarre thing is, yes, even on their own terms, why couldn't they ask questions earlier about the lack of accountability? The argument points out that Boris, Rishi, Hancock and Gove essentially did all this in an unaccountable way. They had too much power. And we can go, well, fair enough, but why didn't you ask any questions about that at the time? Why was it only, when are you going to lock us down more? Do you know what I mean? Exactly. They, the, uh, the Guardian and the Labour Party and, um, and, and, you know, and everybody, uh, there's very, very few of us uh, were, uh, were pointing out um, that this was wrong, uh, both on principle and in terms of the way it was done, process, I mean, and also in terms of what they were doing. The Guardian is just about moving to maybe thinking that Tories shouldn't be able to just shut down all civil liberties and human rights because four cabinet members say so. Well, and the Tory party might not exist that much longer, but that's a whole other topic. So uh, thanks, Will. We'll catch up again with you uh, next week, no doubt. So let's do our Graham Norton section. It's not really a section, but we seem to have a little pop at Graham Norton every week because he's been in the news again. He said this bizarre thing where John Cleese needs to be accountable and free speech has consequences and all the kind of usual vagaries we're used to from the cathedral operatives who want to support the uh, abolition of free speech or the encroachment upon free speech, which I've argued. And then people have actually pushed back against this a bit. Graham Linehan said he was disappointed in it because he gave Norton a break you know, during by putting him on Father Ted. But now what? What is he saying? Linehan has to be held accountable. What does it really mean? J.K. Rowling pushed back on it because he said he was he was pretty pathetic on on Rowling as well. She pushed back on it. Brendan O'Neill wrote a good piece about it, which Mariella Frostrup shared because she was one interviewing Norton. So there's been a bit of pushback, and Graham Norton's ended up deleting his Twitter. He's 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 actually, which is a quite a shocking development because you you know for one of these cathedral people to actually be on the back foot. What do you think, Toby? Yeah, do you think, although he might have done that in order to just play the victim card, you know, um, I'm getting a lot of abuse on social media. Um, you can't actually see it because I've closed my account, but take it from me, I was getting an enormous amount of vituperative abuse. It's very unpleasant. It was wrecking my mental health. So I've just decided to come off Twitter. I mean, it could have been, you know, it could have been a way of kind of, you know, responding to the criticism in order to put the critics on the back foot rather than being on the back foot himself. I mean, it was I mean, do you think that um, that it was actually a bit tin-eared of Graham Norton to come up with that hoary old cliche that cancel culture is just actually accountability culture and there's nothing wrong with holding people to account? Um, it, you know, ha- has he picked the wrong time to kind of defend cancel culture? Um, uh, is can- Are we kind of now slightly beyond peak woke? So people like him who are trying to ingratiate themselves with the kind of high priests of the woke cult have left it a little bit too late. Um, and actually he's seen, he's experienced this backlash because we are seeing a kind of culture-wide backlash against cancel culture. Do we think that's it? Or, or did he just, you know, did he just pick on pick on the wrong people when he criticised Graham Linehan and uh, J.K. Rowling? It's a bit of both. I definitely agree that it is, it is that, but but it's a bit of both because J.K. Rowling, as I said on Headliners last night, is is on the fault line of this. She's sort of so big, but she you know she's on the gender critical side, so so she's not woke. So it's really interesting when you have a pop at Rowling or say the wrong thing about it or or play down the you know uh, council culture and play down these kind of things when we know she receives death threats and rape threats and all this kind of thing 
suddenly you're in trouble, quite rightly, because yeah, your your sort of uh, bland comment, which we'd have been able to get away with another time. Yes, you can't get away with it anymore, especially if Rowling is involved. And I think you're mm. absolutely right. He's mistimed it. He just wants to virtue signal to the woke cathedral, but he's messed up. And I put it on headliners better than I normally say things, to be honest. I might not say it quite as well now, but when people say, and I've written an article about this on my Substack, so you can just go and read it there. But when people say free speech has consequences and blah, 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 accountability, we already know that free speech has caveats built into it. Even in the American First Amendment, there's a caveat about fighting words, which you're not allowed there are already restraints upon free speech. So as Michael Knowles has argued in his recent book, our conception of free speech already means something more like speech standards. So that's already contained within our definition of free speech. So when someone like Norton weighs in, and he doesn't really know what he's doing, but he, this is what he's effectively doing. He weighs in and says, oh, there needs to be accountability and consequences. What those people are really saying to me is, is we need, want to further encroach upon free speech or outright get rid of it, or at least reduce it. Because we already have restraints on free speech. We don't need your extra consequences. Yeah, I mean, it's, um, yeah, it's, it's a kind of, it, as you say, it's a slightly confused and confusing argument because people on our side are not arguing that free speech shouldn't have consequences, that if people say things which, whilst lawful, um, are nonetheless deeply offensive to many people, um, then, of course, there are going to be consequences but it's a question of well what consequences are legitimate within you know a liberal democratic society and what consequences aren't i think if you know if you lose some twitter followers um if you if you if you if you post a picture of the prophet muhammad on twitter um you know you might well be unfollowed by lots of muslims um you might then when you go on television you know to debate that issue kind of uh, face some robust opposition um and that's all fine but uh it's when it's when you re start receiving death threats or when people write to your employer and accuse you of being islamophobic or in salman rushdie's case when people actually try and kill you um for saying perfectly lawful things that you know that's accountability i suppose of a type but why is it an accountability a form of consequence that we in any way defend if we believe in liberal democracy absolutely and i think you'd be quite lucky if you drew muhammad all you got was unfollowed by some muslims but, <laughs> but yeah but 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 that's wrong right it, that that's all that's that's what the consequence should be it shouldn't be any more punitive than that exactly very well put do you want to quickly move on to another burke uh mr james corden who uh this, this is quite a funny one he's been caught Acting in restaurants, very much like you would expect James Corden would behave in a restaurant. He's been caught being an idiot to the servers, being nasty, complaining that his wife's egg yolk omelette had some white in it and screaming, you can't do your job, you can't do your job. Maybe I should just go into the kitchen and cook the omelette myself. And I was saying to him before he came in there that that would be dangerous because he'd probably eat everything. <laughs> yeah, it's, um, it's a terrible kind of um, uh, morality tale about, you know, the effects of being a celebrity isn't it on your personality i remember meeting james corden at a gq man of the year party about it must have been about at least 15 years ago it was when he was a uh, currently appearing in the history boys at the national theater alan bennett's play about a group of clever kids who are at a grammar school and they're in this Oxbridge class and being it's really good play loved it and he's really he was really good in it and he was still in it and I was sitting down he was I was sitting next to him at this kind of you know table at this dinner at the GQ man of the year party and I was a 
I think working as a theatre critic at the time, and I praised his performance, said how great I thought it was and how much I'd enjoyed the play. And he said, well, can I therefore seek your advice? Should I? I've, I've, um, I've got an agent as a result of being in this play, and I'm now being told um, that I, I shouldn't stay with the cast. I, I need to move on and do something else. I'm getting a lot of offers, uh, but the producers of the play want me to you know, c- continue to do it when it moves to the West End. And I'm sort of in two minds. I'm conflicted. What do you think would be better for my career? But he was kind of very modest and humble and seeking my advice, I think, not, not, not to flatter me. I think he genuinely you know um didn't quite know what to do it was kind of all new to him this success was overwhelming he 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 didn't quite know how to respond um and i advised him to remain with the cast and stay with it when it transferred to the west end and yeah that was a fantastic experience and he was obviously going to go on to have a successful career in film and television i didn't anticipate he'd become a kind of talk show host but you know you don't want you you might not get another opportunity to do something as satisfying as this again it'll be great a great grounding for you good training it'll enhance your reputation you'll get more respect you know from your fellow actors if you stick with this rather than immediately abandon them but the first whiff of kind of you know telly success anyway he seemed to take that advice on board i can't now remember whether he followed it or not but he he, he, but just to go from that to being this kind of monster who starts reaming out, you know, um, the waitstaff of Balthazar because there's a speck of yellow in his wife's egg white omelette. Um, it's just kind of, it's just, a, this is what happens if you become famous. It just brings out the worst in you. He's clearly become a complete celebrity monster. Um, I guess it's, you know, it, it, it's not surprising. I think you need to be fairly psychologically robust, you know, a Clint Eastwood or a Paul Newman, not to be completely corrupted by that level of fame but clearly he 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 hasn't been able to he's got no antibodies to it at all and he's just become you know this horrible monster yes and i'd like to say maybe it's just one of those they caught him at the wrong time or whatever but there are a lot of stories coming out of similar restaurant behavior so there, there does seem to be a pattern that's all i'll say all right that's cordon dealt with um do you want to quickly go over the battle of ideas for the people that couldn't make it yeah, well, I thought um, I was quite touched reading your own account of um, uh, what a great time you'd had at the Battle of Ideas, that in a small pocket of SW3 turned out you were quite famous and uh, and and how much you enjoyed that. I mean, I, I, I can't say I had an identical experience, but um, I, I enjoyed it nevertheless. I, I went on Saturday. Did you go on Sunday as well? No. So I guess we should say for the benefit of our listeners who don't know what it is, it's, um, it's a two-day intellectual festival of ideas organized by um claire fox and the institute of ideas and um and there were lots of panels and discussions and i think andrew doyle recorded an episode of free speech nation there and um yeah the free speech union we were one of the sponsors of the events and we hosted a panel on the online safety bill and that seemed to go quite well and we had a stall there and um yeah it was kind of like i mean one one thing i will say about it is it's 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 presented as a battle and the idea is that people with very different opposing views can come together in this kind of safe space to kind of have 
you know, respectful exchanges. And um, the truth is, there aren't that many people, you know, on the other side. Um, there were, I didn't see many woke people. I didn't see many trans rights activists there kind of um, respectfully arguing in a good humoured way with kind of culture warriors on our side. It was more like a kind of gathering of the tribe, wasn't it? It was like the kind of daytime version of Comedy Unleashed more than anything else. Well, there is that argument, but it's not quite that straightforward because because that's the, there's a criticism is like oh they're all on the same side anyway and andy burnham was the mayor of manchester now said that oh they'll they're them and their mad right-wing ideas have been proven false and this was in a reply to a, a picture of you and claire fox at the battle of ideas mm. and i thought it was very unfair this idea that it's mad right-wing ideas because i mean let's face it claire fox used to be in the communist party or the revolutionary <laughs> communist party whatever it's called she was a big lefty andrew, andrew doyle despite what people say is still a big lefty i spoke to all kinds of people there who I wouldn't agree with on all kinds of things who are, who are big lefties to me. And so there is a big difference. And I've tried to capture it in my Substack piece, which you, thank you for referencing. It's more like a collection of outsiders, a band of outsiders. That's a movie called that, isn't it? That rather than the right wing or something, or, or, but it's, it's sort of the canceled people. Or, is that how you'd put it? Yeah. Yeah. I'd say people who, yeah, it's, it's not, it's not, it's not so much people on the, right side of the left right divide it's more people on the libertarian side of the libertarian authoritarian divide right um, right right but i guess there are probably more and there there are some you know libertarian right people there but there were also quite a few people there from the libertarian left like claire fox yeah exactly i mean what was great about it though like you say it was great to be famous in that one tiny postcode so many people were saying i love you on gb news or lotus eaters and the weekly skeptic as soon as i came into the building someone was saying I, I love the weekly skeptic so it was very touching we and i thank you for all that and the only problem was i got accosted so much i missed the free food by the time i got there it was just like three cheese uh, and tomato sandwiches you've got to be quite quick very quick to get very the free quick. food yeah. so i'm going to move a lot yeah. faster on that next year but it was, a, it was a good event my particular panel was talking about dating apps bizarrely and i thought i was pretty funny i got some big laughs i thought i was the villain of the piece and i thought people weren't necessarily liking me even though they were laughing at me but then afterwards people came up and thanked me for being very forthright because I was just being, you know, I was just dropping truth bombs, whereas the other people were being perhaps a little bit more PC. And I got in trouble for saying the phrase Pareto distribution of the global sexual marketplace. Oh, that's a normal phrase, Pareto. But everyone looked at me like I was mad and, and, and repeated the word Pareto. They said, what was it, Pareto? And they were sort of mocking me for being clever, even at the Battle of Ideas. I couldn't believe it. But I thought that went pretty well. You saw some of it, didn't you? Yes, I did. Yeah, I thought you were very funny. Um, and I, I couldn't stay for all of it because I wanted to go and see Constantin Kissin being interviewed in the basement of Church House um, about his new book. Um, so I, I peeled away without, without, I thought if you'd known why I was leaving, you might have uh, been quite cross. So it wouldn't I, be I the first time Constantin's usurped <laughs> me, but that's fine. Um, what was your highlight? From the, let's do pros and cons of the Battle of Ideas. What was your highlight? Well, I thought our, I mean, I thought our panel went um, pretty well. Um, I, uh, and we had a kind of packed house. There were even people standing at the back, which was good. Um, and uh, we had, um, you know, some pretty good contributions from the panelists. Uh, Molly Kingsley, Charles Colville, um, a solicitor called um, Graham Smith very well chaired by Jan McVarish of the Free Speech Union. Uh, I was that, 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 that for me was one of the highlights. And um, we also had a lot of people come up to the Free Speech Union stall and tell us, you know, how much they valued the work we're doing. And some of them bought T-shirts and tote bags. We even had a couple of people join. Um, so that's always nice. It's always nice to kind of, you know, to be to, to get the reminder from people that um, the work you're doing is valued and important. 
Yeah, and it's a great event. So come along next year if you can, if it's still on. Presumably the culture will still be a complete mess and we'll still need events like this. I think so. All right, now time for everyone's favourite section, Peak Woke. So for this week's Peak Woke, I've actually got three. I've gone big on this and uh, they're all good. But one of them is so good. I think it's I think it's definitely going to win. But my first one was just Lorraine Kelly saying to Eddie Izzard, you go, girl, in a tweet, which I thought was hilarious. It's, I thought it was a bit mean of her, but um, if she was trolling Eddie. <laughs> but um, it was, and it was it came just after she called Madonna a fried egg. So she was attacking Madonna for not looking very good. But Eddie Izzard is a, is a beautiful woman who should be encouraged. My other one is... Uh, the New York Times had a piece on so-called light supremacy, that's L-I-T-E, and I didn't read the piece because it was behind a paywall and I didn't want to pay for it, but the tweet said, as the US becomes less white, white supremacy could simply be replaced by or buffeted by a form of light supremacy in which fairer-skinned people perpetuate a modified anti-blackness rather than eliminating it, writes Charles M. Blow. So this new kind of white supremacy that doesn't come from white people, but that comes from uh, I don't know. Other people, I, I didn't understand it at all, but it, it sounded definitely very woke. Uh, light supremacy. No idea, guys, really. But the best one had to be this from uh, Nandini Balial. And I thought this was fake at first, but I've checked it out and it seems to be real. And she's a Black Lives Matter activist and she's written for places like The Daily Beast. And so there was a woman from Chicago I'm actually just going to bring up the tweet uh, directly because it's 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 too good to get wrong. So there's a woman from Chicago. She was arrested for dismembering her 65-year-old landlord's body after getting an eviction notice. And the body of the landlord was found in her freezer. So I believe she killed the landlord, cut her up. Sorry to be graphic, guys. And this was a woman in Chicago. And, of course, the landlord was white and the, the woman was black. And that is relevant to the, to the, to the piece. Because Nandini Balial wrote, where's the bail fund? I want to donate. So she was saying that she wanted to help out this killer who had dismembered her landlord. That's how peak woke she was. That's how Black Lives Matter she was. And it seems to be real. And this, she seems to have a bit of form in this area, not necessarily in the realm of, of dismembering, but in the general realm of hating white people and so on. That is, yeah, that's pretty hard to beat. Um, I'm not sure I can compete with that, but I'll tell you what I've got. Um, so I don't think I can mention the um, tweet by Leicestershire Police because um, I've mentioned that already, but I will come on to that actually. But the first one I wanted to mention, which I'm not sure whether it qualifies as peak woke, but we did a story on the Daily Skeptic today actually about how the Sunderland Air Show has been cancelled for the third year in a row and the council have said they're not going to hold it in Sunderland again um, and they cancelled it um, I think in 2020 and 2021 um, because of the um, lockdown um, they said because of the pandemic um, we can't possibly hold the Sunderland air show people will infect each other as they look up to watch the planes flying past um, uh, but this year they've cancelled it because of climate change you know, because we're in the midst of a climate emergency, um, it would be inappropriate for um, uh, Sunderland to host an air show because of all the carbon emissions. And it would be inconsistent with Sunderland's ambition to be carbon neutral, I think, by 2040. Um, so I thought that was, um, I mean, a great example of how the um, 
restrictions on our freedoms and the general destruction of kind of social life that were that took place during the lockdown are now going to be extended but for a completely different but equally spurious reason which is to combat the climate emergency and we see many examples of that of which this is just one um another example um uh, a teacher, uh, a primary school teacher, um, was sacked for refusing to use the preferred gender pronouns of a child um, in their class. And the Christian Legal Center, I think, is is um, helping them to appeal that um, uh, in the employment tribunal. But actually, I've got another case I'm working with the Christian Legal Center on. So earlier I said that um, Leicestershire Police, in claiming that it was a hate crime to misgender someone, had overstepped the mark. Well, maybe, but actually this other case is a case of a, a an evangelical Christian preacher um, who was arrested after he got into an argument with a member of the public, a trans woman, um, who essentially said, you know, what's your view on homosexuality um, and gay marriage? And um, it tried to kind of um, uh, draw him out in a way she thought would, you know, antagonise the crowd. And um, and in the course of this, he kept referring to her as him. And he said, this gentleman has asked a question. He kept saying that. And I'm going to answer this gentleman's question. And she said, I'm not a gentleman. I'm a woman. To which he would respond, no, you're a gentleman, and I'm going to answer your question in a minute, sir. You know, and he was sort of, you know, seemingly kind of um, fairly um, aggressive um, about misgendering this trans woman. But um, uh, he was then arrested um, and charged, I think, with a public order offence and convicted in a county court for misgendering a trans woman. Um, so Christian, the Christian Legal Centre are helping him appeal this conviction. Um, and I've been drafted in as an expert witness um, on on his behalf. Um, and so I've, I've, I've drafted my witness statement and submitted it. And that trial will, um, uh, the, the appeal will come to trial in due course. So maybe, you know, Leicestershire police were onto something and you can now be arrested and, and charged and convicted for misgendering someone. Uh, but interestingly, um, if we think of it as a, a hate crime as a crime which is um, a, an or, which is a crime under any circumstances, but is exacerbated because the perpetrator um, uh, uh, has particular hostility to the victim based on the victim's protect based on one of the victim's protected characteristics, and that means that it will receive a higher tariff if 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 convicted than um, that crime under other circumstances. That's what you usually mean by hate crime. It's not a standalone crime, rather it's something that you add on to an existing crime to make it worse and to punish it more severely. So I don't think it quite fits into that category, but then hate crime is a pretty broad term. So maybe maybe the Leicestershire police you know, should be forgiven. Um, and I don't think it was in Leicestershire that this particular person was convicted. I think it was in Leeds, but I'm not certain about that. Okay, well, that's anyway, certainly, works. yeah, that's a strong contender. I have to say it's between that and and my um, uh, bail woman who wants to bail out the the person with the landlord in her freezer. I think I think mine has to win it because that's just so absurd. And I have and she also I think, yeah I think yeah yeah she also protected her tweets by the way like Graham Norton because it didn't go so well on Twitter. So I think I gave you it last week. I'm going to give myself P quote, which sadly means you win weak poke, Toby. Those are the rules. <laughs> okay, Those I'll, are the only two I'll choices. <laughs> and um, with that, maybe we can go to our reader letter, which actually references this. So someone has very kindly written in, Dear Toby, the Grand Liz Trust fascist dress story, which refers to a story we did the other week about um, Liz Trust being called 
wearing a fascist dress because it was the same dress that Emma Thompson wore in some BBC thing no one's watched. So the Gorn Liz Trust fascist dress story is public school posh shows doing down an uppity comp girl who has to wear her dresses more than once. Trust was seen in the, the Karen Miller dress before the release of Years and Years in which Footlight's alumna Emma wore a deeper red version, an obvious dig at Trust and one which Russell T. Davis couldn't wait to boast about again. Podcast is excellent, thanks. Weak poke, an excellent joke too. Sincerely, Nigel. So he's questioning the chronology of that and saying really it was an attack on a comp trust. Yeah, I mean, I think if he's right, that's really quite uh, an important point, isn't it? He's effectively saying that um, Emma Thompson in this BBC drama about an alt-right government coming to power in Britain, I think that's what it's about, um, she wore a dress based on a dress Liz Truss had worn in order to kind of smear Liz Truss as, you know, a far right uh, populist demagogue. Um, because Liz Truss isn't very rich, certainly not as rich as Emma Thompson, she then wore the same dress, you know, two years later. And at which point she was smeared for a second time with people saying, oh, look, she's wearing the same dress that this woman wore, that Emma Thompson wore in this uh, BBC drama. But it's like, you know, uh, if it was originally based on her, they're not surprising. Anyway. Yeah, absolutely. And, and thanks for your letters. And by the way, and your comments and so on and, uh, and reviews. And that was, um, that was from Nigel. And he says that weak poke's an excellent joke, which was my idea, but, but, but peak woke was Toby's idea. So let's be very fair about that. So what are you going to say, Toby? I feel like you were about to. I was, I, I, I was just going to say before, no, I think that, that I accept that, but <laughs> before we go, um, we should just, um, plug a couple of things. So, um, Please, if you enjoy the content on The Daily Skeptic, uh, do donate for just £5. You can donate, for, you can comment um, beneath articles for a month and for £50, you can do that for a year. Um, but we do depend on your donations in order to survive and produce the high quality output we do. So and don't think of it as, you know, you could make t you can't donate enough for it to make any difference. Every little helps. So www.dailyskeptic.org. If you enjoy the content and you enjoy these podcasts, please donate. Only if you have some spare money after donating to The Daily Skeptic, you should consider going to Nick Dixon's Substack, nickdixon.substack.com. You could subscribe for free. Many people have subscribed for free and then, and then looked at the content. It's so good, they then upgrade. And uh, thanks to all the people that have done that, especially the Weekly Skeptic listeners. I noticed I got a bump after our podcast last week. So thank you very much for that. Anything to close on, Toby? I think that's it. Last time I checked, Liz Truss was still in Downing Street, so we don't need to update that yet. Yeah, we may need to do another podcast tomorrow with the new Prime Minister and new Chancellor. But for now, thank you very much for listening, and we'll see you next week.